Life Audio. Today I'm going to be meditating on the story of the Samaritan woman at the well. Um, so I'll read the story and then I'm going to do my introduction and then my fictionalized retelling of it. So this is in John starting at John 4, starting in verse 1. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you have now is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither worship on this mountain, when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we worship, for salvation is of the, we know what we worship, for the salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And at this point, his disciples came, and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. Yet no one said, What do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? The woman then left the water pot and went her way into the city and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all the things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat, of which you do not know. Therefore the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? Jesus said to them, My food has nothing has to do with the will of him who sent me, and to finish his work. Do you, do, do you not say, There are still four months, and then, the, then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, Lift up your eyes, and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages, and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labors. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Okay, so um, I didn't 
include this story in my Daughters of Zion biblical retellings, uh, the book, only because the theme of that book was miracles experienced by women and not just biblical stories in which a woman was prominently featured. Otherwise, this would have been one of the big ones. The story only appears in the Gospel of John, though it makes sense why John specifically would have chosen to include it. The theme of his gospel is love. The Jews of Jesus' day scorned Samaritans, and from a religious standpoint, it would seem that there were good reasons for this. The Samaritans were Jews who had intermarried with pagans of neighboring nations, violating God's commandments to Joshua, Joshua 23:11-13, and falling prey to the doctrine of Balaam from Numbers 23-24. God specifically told the Jews not to intermarry with those who worshipped other gods, lest they be led into idolatry. But when Assyria captured Samaria in 2 Kings 17:5-41, the Assyrian king sent foreigners into the land who were other gods. The Jews there did intermarry with them and incorporated their pagan practices into their worship of Yahweh as well. Because of this, devout Jews wanted nothing to do with Samaritans and wouldn't allow them to worship at their temple. The Samaritans had thus erected their own temple for worship instead in John four nineteen to 20 even among her fellow Samaritans, though, this woman was an outcast. This is implied by the fact that she went alone to the well in the heat of the day rather than in the morning when it was cooler with all the other women. Her story, as Jesus revealed it, indicates the probable reason for this. Her immoral behavior presumably caused the respectable women of the town to look down on her. This was probably why she was so shocked when Jesus spoke to her, even humbling himself to the point of asking her for a favor. I'm sure he really did want a drink, though, as we're told earlier in the story that he was weary from his journey, and it was mid-afternoon, so possibly it was hot, John 4, 6. The story never mentions that the woman actually gave him a drink, so as I wrote the retelling, I kept thinking, he's still thirsty. Jesus's humility in asking the woman for a favor probably lowered her defense mechanisms initially, but I love how Jesus proceeded to dismantle whatever remained of them with just a few sentences. Every chick flick or chick lit story features an archetypical down and out heroine embittered by the adversities of life. She then surreptitiously encounters a romantic hero who is the very embodiment of perfection. He's not only handsome, confident, and kind, but also several rungs above her on the social ladder to boot. But he's never arrogant about it. He sees through our heroine's prickly defenses to the soft heart she's trying to protect, and he's absolutely taken with her. From that point on, he pursues her relentlessly, refusing to be dissuaded. Try as she might, she can't resist him, because as frightened as she is of letting herself be vulnerable, all she's ever wanted is for someone to look past her faults, see her for who she truly is, and love her anyway. She falls in love with him in spite of herself, and then, of course, they live happily ever after. That's how I see this story, and I think it's how John saw it, too. It's not a romance in the human sense, and yet, as author John Eldridge would put it, it's the sacred romance, writ small and personal, almost an allegory, though this was also a real woman, too. We're not called the Bride of Christ for nothing. I don't think it's a coincidence that this woman was the lowest of the low in that society, either. And yet, despite that, this woman is the first recorded person to whom Jesus overtly declares his identity as the Messiah in John four twenty twenty five to 26 of all people, he chose her to be the first to hear the news, just as later the formerly demon-possessed Mary Magdalene was the first to see the risen Christ. John is also the only gospel writer to explicitly record this encounter in John twenty eleven to 18. If Jesus qualified even these women, then there's hope for all of us. This is Chris Christensen, and back in 2006, I started a simple project, a project to try and introduce more people to the Bible through Bible study called the Bible Study Podcast. It's a simple name and a simple idea. Each week, every week, we study one chapter of the Bible, talk about what it says, and what that might mean for us today. To listen now, go to lifeaudio.com or search for the Bible Study Podcast on your favorite podcast app. 
The Historical Jesus Podcast is the sweeping saga of the life and times of Galilean Jesus of Nazareth, as well as the faith, religion, and church founded to honor and disseminate his acts and teachings. Join me, Mark Vinette, on this fascinating journey through time, exploring the many great works of Christian theology, literature, architecture, music, and art inspired by the words and deeds of Jesus Christ. Okay, so this is my fictionalized version. Talia awoke thirsty. She had just enough water left over from what she'd drawn the day before to either drink or to perform her morning toilet, but not both. Before she'd even risen from bed, she decided she'd quench her thirst and be grubby. After all, nobody would see her today except Amir when he came home from work. By then, she'd have been able to draw more water to make herself presentable, even if she had to wait hours to do it. Unfortunately, she found the pail completely empty when she rose. She swore. Amir must have taken the rest of it himself. It was just like him not to even consider that she couldn't go down and get more as soon as she arose like all the other women of the town. "'Why can't you?' he'd said when she'd argued about this once before. "'You know why!' she'd retorted. "'All the people of Samaria scorn me, and the women are worst of all.' "'Who cares if they scorn you? You're thirsty, they're thirsty. "'Can you not even imagine what it's like,' she'd whispered, "'to be reviled by everyone who sees me?' Amir had actually rolled his eyes. "'You're too sensitive. You can hide from them if you want, but don't make it my problem.' So, of course, he'd taken all the water for himself and left her with nothing but the choice of a half-day of thirst or the pain of open scorn. She chose thirst, though she did lurk in the shadows of her home, peering out the windows as the gaggle of other Samaritan women passed by. She heard them all chatting and laughing, their toddlers and small children playing a rollicking game of tag in their wake. The cheerful sound produced a pang in her chest that felt almost physical. She would give anything, anything, to be among them, to be accepted, to belong. But it was much too late for her. True, she'd made her own mistakes that had solidified her position as an outcast, but it hadn't started out that way. Her first husband had written her a certificate of divorce and cast her aside for reasons unknown to her. She had not pleased him somehow, and he was not required to explain his reasons. She suspected she knew, though. In four years of marriage, she had failed to produce a child. In shame and devastation, she had left that village and gone to another where she would be unknown. There, she had managed to pass herself off as an orphaned virgin, with no father to speak for her. She was still young enough for this to be plausible and pretty enough to catch a man's eye, though he would have to be of a lower class to consider a woman with no known connections. Within months, a poor young merchant took her as his wife. But when he discovered that she was not a virgin after all, he too cast her aside. That marriage had lasted only months. After that, Talia had moved again, pretending this time that she had been widowed soon after marriage to account for her childlessness. She could never have lied so glibly in her youth, but there was a hard shell around her heart now, dulling both pain and conscience. Another young man, a shepherd, took her for his own. They remained married only for a year, until one day Talia accidentally spoke of her second husband in an anecdote. She'd previously only used the name of her first. This brought out the whole story, and her husband divorced her for, the, for her lies as well as for her harlotry, as he put it. Two more hasty marriages and divorces followed over the ensuing five years. No children had resulted from any of them. When her last husband had cast her out, she hadn't so much as shed a tear, nor did she bother moving again. She had run out of towns where she was unknown and no hope of enticing, and had no hope of enticing another man to marry her, even if she could have started over again. She'd already suffered five rejections in the bloom of her youth. Now, in her late twenties, her heart shattered, her heart, her shattered heart had begun to show in the fine lines on her face. She already looked pre like a prematurely withered spinster. There was only one thing she had left to give, and with no virtue, fertility, or beauty thrown into the bargain, she knew no man would be foolish enough to trade his name to have it. So, when Amir had approached her as a harlot, she gathered up what little self-respect she still possessed, and made him a counter-offer. 
Rather than exchanging money for each encounter, if he would merely give her a roof and a bed, he could have her exclusively, whenever he liked. She did not ask for respectability, only sustenance. He agreed, of course, and here she was. But he had always treated her as an object he owned, rather than as a person with her own thoughts, feelings, and desires. Some of her husbands had done this, too, but never as overtly as Amir. He ignored or abused her as he pleased, and certainly never curbed any of his own desires or preferences to give precedence to hers. The worst of it was the loneliness. Amir sustained her physically, but that was all, and it was not enough. Her family had long since disowned her, or she might have considered going back to them. She really hadn't even tried to make friends with any of the other women in Sikar. She'd tried in a few other towns, and the result was painful enough that she had no wish to relive it. She looked uh, The looks and whispers whenever she dared show her face were bad enough. So here she waited, parched, bitter, and alone in the shadows of her home, listening to the laughter of the respectable women and the shouts of their playing children as they openly carried their sloshing buckets without a, without a care in the world. Talia always ventured to the well herself at midday, when the sun was highest in the sky and it was much too hot for comfort. Only then would she be sure to avoid the stares and sneers. It was particularly warm on this day, and the well was on a hill, with no trees for shade. She felt beads of sweat collect and roll down the sides of her face as she climbed the hill to the well. She, was, she had already been thirsty all morning. Now her tongue seemed to stick to the roof of her mouth. Just as she crested the hill and the well came into, fully into view, though, Talia froze. She wasn't alone. A man sat on the outer, little outer stone wall on the edge of the well under the shade of its awning. She saw at a glance that he was a Jewish rabbi, as he wore a prayer shawl, though it lacked the ostentation of the similar garment of the Pharisees and Sadducees. He seemed young, not much older than she was, and he was looking right at her, almost as if he had been waiting for her. She had a moment of indecision. Should she go away and return later when she could proceed with her task unobserved, or should she do what she came to do and just pretend not to see him? Her thirst made up her mind for her. The thought of going away without a drink made her throat constrict and tears spring to her eyes. She simply couldn't bear it. So she set her jaw and averted her eyes from the rabbi, expecting him to get up and leave when he saw that she was still intent upon her task. He wouldn't know of her lifestyle, but she was still a Samaritan and a woman, and that, cert that was certainly reason enough for him to shun her. Strangely, though, not only did the man not leave as she approached, but she still felt the uncanny sense that his eyes were upon her as she lowered her bucket down into the well and drew it back up again. It was unnerving, but she refused to look at him as she took her first long, refreshing drink. Would you give me a drink, too? She looked at the man sharply, rather in shock. He was speaking to her? Not only that, but he was asking to drink from the same bucket as she did? Without thinking, she blurted, You, a Jew, are asking me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? Jews wanted nothing to do with the Samaritans. She didn't know all the background of the relationship between the two related races, but she knew it had something to do with the Jewish belief that Samaritans had perverted their religion. The young rabbi actually smiled at her. There was something penetrating in his gaze, and yet it didn't feel at all threatening or violating. Strangely, though he was near her own age, this, this man's tender expression reminded her of, what she'd, of when she'd been a little girl, dancing before her father without a care in the world. Her father had looked at her like that then, even though he'd since disowned her. A lump sprang to her throat at the memory, as the rabbi said, If you knew the generosity of God and who I am, you would be asking me for a drink, and I would give you fresh living water. She was silent for a moment, trying to process the meaning of what he'd just said. She had a vague sense that this was a metaphor of some kind. Sir, you don't even have a bucket to draw with, and this well is deep, she said slowly. How are you going to get this living water? Are you a better man than our ancestor Jacob, who dug this well and drank from it, he and his sons and livestock, and passed it down to us? The rabbi did not seem at all offended by the bluntness of her question, but his answer did nothing to clarify. Everyone who drinks this water will get thirsty again and again. Anyone who drinks the water I give will never thirst, not ever. The water I give will be a gushing fountain of endless life. Was he speaking in riddles on purpose? All right, she'd play along. 
Sir, give me this water so I won't ever get thirsty and won't even ever have to come back to this well again. Certainly that would be nice. Almost as if he read her mind, the rabbi tilted his head to the side as he regarded her. Go call your husband and then come back. His words hit her like a blow. She dreaded the moment when she'd see judgment upon his face as he turned away from her. But best to get it over with. I have no husband, she told him, lifting her chin just a bit as she said it and meeting his gaze squarely. Let him read into that what he may. That's a diplomatic way to put it. I have no husband. You've had five husbands, and the man you're living with now isn't even your husband. You spoke truly. Talia's mouth fell open a bit. So you're a prophet, she exclaimed, before she could think to not to deny it. Then she mentally kicked herself. But really, how else would he know all that? And if he did know it, why was he still sitting here talking to her and still gazing at her like that? There was no other word for it. She somehow knew that he wasn't propositioning her, but wasn't he even worried about his reputation to be seen speaking alone to a woman like her? Didn't he know how his frankness and his piercing gaze might be misconstrued by her as much as by anyone who happened to see it? Well, if he wouldn't distance himself, she would have to do it for him. When she found her tongue, she stammered, Our ancestors worshipped God at this mountain, but you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place for worship, right? She felt sure that he could still hear her heart pounding. Religion, at least, seemed a safer subject, though. Why didn't the man blink? He continued to stare, as if he could see clear through to her backbone. She felt sure he knew exactly what she was trying to do, but he answered her anyway. Believe me, miss, the time is coming when you Samaritans will worship the Father neither here at this mountain nor there in Jerusalem. You worship guessing in the dark. We Jews worship in the clear light of day. God's way of salvation is made available through the Jews, but the time is coming. It has, in fact, come. When what you're called will not matter, and where you go to worship will not matter. It's who you are and the way you live that count before God. You must worship with your spirit and in truth. That's the kind of people the Father is looking for, those who are simply and honestly themselves before him in their worship. God is a spirit, and those who worship him must do it with their spirits and according to his truth. Something within Talia's chest burned as he spoke. It was longing, she knew, but she could not have said exactly what it was that she longed for. She wanted him, this enigmatic man who sat before her, but not in the way that a woman normally wants a man. It was nothing so ordinary and cheap as that. What she wanted was to wrap his words around her like a blanket, to bask in the glow of being counted worthy for a Jewish rabbi, one who even knew the worst that she had done, to nevertheless speak of such things to her, to invite her to worship God even as they worshipped. More than that, to worship from the deepest part of herself, to carry the temple inside of her wherever she went. He's the Messiah. The thought struck her as if from the outside, and with such astounding force that she was suddenly certain it was true. She simultaneously wanted to weep and to laugh. Somehow she restrained both impulses and probed her heart in her throat. I do know that the Messiah is coming. When he arrives, he will tell us all things. The rabbi's eyes crinkled at the corners, shining with pleasure. His smile answered her before his words did. I am he. Talia forgot to breathe. She had no idea how long she stood there gazing at him as he gazed upon her. The look itself was more intimate than an embrace. She had the sudden absurd thought that she, of all people, was the first to whom he had openly declared this. She wanted to do something extravagant, to fall at his feet in worship, perhaps, or to pour her bucket of water upon his feet and cover them with kisses. But no, that would be wildly inappropriate, wouldn't it? She was still in the midst of this exalted and frantic internal deliberation when the moment was broken by the approach of voices. She startled and whirled around as if she'd been caught doing something shameful, the water in the bucket she still held sloshing down the front of her shabby dress. The rabbi laughed. Those are just my disciples, he told her. The splash of water on her feet suddenly reminded her, I never gave you a drink! She offered him the bucket at last. 
I'd hoped you wouldn't forget, he said with a twinkle of mirth, before taking a long draught from it. Even as he drank, he still watched her, and his eyes still smiled. She felt as though he were drenching her in pure love, as surely as if he had overturned the water bucket on her head. Talia felt herself grinning back at him like a skiddy, giddy schoolgirl. Her chest felt so full it might burst. Suddenly she knew exactly how to respond. She had to tell everyone about him. All the people she'd avoided since she'd moved to Sikar, those who whispered about her behind her back and glared at her when she passed by them on the opposite side of the street. Suddenly, she did not fear them any more. After all, what did their judgment matter? The Messiah himself loved her. So I hope that was helpful to you. Thank you for joining me, and I'll see you next week. What happens when a writer and former history teacher goes toe-to-toe with his best friend, a nationally touring stand-up comedian? Total carnage, that's what. Two men enter, and two men leave, because that's how it works. (laughs) Actually, you get hilarious, real, and insightful conversations about life, history, culture, faith, and everything in between. Join me, comedian Johnny W., and my pal, author, and speaker John Driver for Talk About That at lifeaudio.com or wherever you get your podcasts.